Welcome back to Night School episode five, getting that right this time. And this time we're gonna be discussing uh, Walt Whitman's Song of Myself, probably something like parts five to nine. We're not, we're playing that sort of loose and fast though, not hard and tight. Uh, seeing where we can go in about 30 minutes to 40 minutes, the amount of time that it would take for say, a lesson to be taught on this sort of, um, this sort of poem, a poem of this length. And so um, this time, well, first I should introduce my colleague, my esteemed colleague, Mr. Wesley Chance. Welcome back. Hello, hello. And we do find ourselves here on Columbus Day. I, had, I didn't have to work, you did have to work. And so that's a nice thing to be working on a holiday um, and to sort of, you know, remember how wonderful it is to live in this beautiful country and thus celebrate it by analyzing one of our great poets, the poet that at least according to the biography in, uh, on Poetry Foundation, org, which I use for the share screen, which I'll, I'll do now um, for the YouTube listeners. Um, he's described as America's epic poet, put in mm. the same conversation as what we talked about last time, Virgil, Homer, and Dante. And so when he did sing at the beginning and writes a song of himself, he truly is, he truly is attempting to put himself in the company of those epic poets who came before from traditions before and so I'm I'm really looking forward to this um, I didn't and, and so that's something I wanted to say too and talk about with you too Wes not only did I want to talk about the humility of using a dictionary if you notice on the shared screen I've got several dictionary.com uh, tabs open a thwart abeyance Kelson Moulane and uh, well I suppose the second thing is how do you feel about using a dictionary with a poem with some enact with some you know, archaic words, some archaicisms, words that are far outside the ordinary. And um, yeah, that's my first question. Yeah, I, I think the dictionary is like the greatest resource for an English teacher, right? Like you shouldn't forget that the class is called English because you are literally just like learning the language, right. kind of like a second language sometimes. Like you've got to learn to think about your language as if it's something you don't know, because you really don't know it. <laughs> it's like, uh, anyway, so yeah, I mean, learning words and using the dictionary for that is a really good habit to get into. Or, you know, these days, like just looking them up online. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, and I mean, I use the dictionary.com app, and something else I would mention is that I dictionary.com did not have the best um, definition of the, the word Kelsen. It had a very odd definition that was hard to visualize, and there was some something about something that runs through parallel to a certain part of a ship that maybe required a piece of knowledge that I didn't have. But on Google, on Google Translate or Google Dictionary, it was described as a a structural element that runs through the entirety of a ship. So it's like the heart of the nervous system. So that's that's a much stronger and more helpful definition and so that's something else that I think the readers should keep in mind not only should you have the humility to always be looking up words and to at least look up word origins that's what I was doing with a thwart there which means mm -hmm. crossing somebody and thus when you cross someone's path you become opponent or antagonist to them and so that's interesting uh, that's so that's what it means to thwart somebody's plans which is very much an old English old Norse word word which you know it makes sense it's very much ugly very consonantal um, and many of our words like that, like wart, for example, come from, uh, come from Old English. Uh, whereas, and we'll have this displayed in this poem, like more highfalutin, more educated sounding words, often with U-M endings, like decorum, come from Latin, of course. 
and um, you know, a culture we generally consider higher culture. And so it's interesting to get at the, the nature or the essence of these words, which you can now do in these dictionaries. Actually, dictionaries, the more sophisticated you become, the more sophisticated they, they become. And there are even elements of uh, prescriptive and descriptive reading that come into play with dictionaries as well, and how Webster and Johnson in England wrote their own dictionaries, and that's why we spell th words a bit differently in America from uh, how British people spell words. Like, that's why we don't use the U, because they model their language in a more French way, whereas we modeled ours more off Latin, which is something I think a lot of people don't know. Hmm. And so, this Walt Whitman, I guess we should get to, uh, get to the poem itself. And, um, well, I guess that brings me to the, the first point again, which was, how, how are you preparing to go do these reviews, Wes, yourself as a teacher of some years? Well, uh, I don't actually read these beforehand. I did read The Raven beforehand since I hadn't looked at it in a while. Um, but this poem, I've just been reading it on the spot, I got to say. That's excellent. And I think that's a, that is a very effective way to teach a poem, showing your ability to analyze and wade through unknown territory and thus your mastery of the art of language and thinking while you're, you know, while you are doing this. I think it's it's like a swordsman improvising. It's like jazz in that respect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I have read this poem a number of times over the course of my education. Uh, never in high school that I recall, but um, once I got to college, I read it a few times in a few different different versions because I got kind of into poetry for a while there. Um, but uh, I I yeah, I haven't looked at it in a while, and so I'm just kind of giving my my impressions of it as I go. Well, that's excellent. And this time around, I just sort of read through what I expected we would get through once. It was interesting to have the, those few moments to reflect before coming to this. It's, it's as if I, I wove one layer of thread and now I can weave another one over because I've covered some of the ground at this yeah. point. And I, I have not read, I'm perhaps selections from this poem at some point, but they didn't stick in my memory. Um, and so I, that leads me to believe that I hadn't read this poem. But um, it, it is very different from, I think, the conventional English lesson plan that relies potentially more heavily on the historical context of the poem and teaching facts about the poet and potentially the sort of socioeconomic conditions about the poet as if those are most important. And, um, and, and focusing less on the ability to analyze the poetry for what it is and to extract the information from it and more on appreciating the the place the poem uh, has in history without really linking, making that relevant to the student in any way. Because frankly, who cares? Wes? Wait, sorry, I, I dropped you there for a second. Uh, what, what was the last thing you heard? I thought that might have happened. I heard, because frankly, and then it cut oh, out. <laughs> that's funny. Well, you didn't miss much. Uh, it was because frankly, nobody cares, or generally students do not care what place a piece of literature, which is hard to read, occupies within a, another abstract concept, the literary canon of all humans. Uh, much more, yeah, go on. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's something to be said for all that stuff, but probably not on your first read of a poem. As a student, you'd probably first like to know, you know, yeah, first, what is this poem? like? why am I reading this? And, and the, the reason for that is 
not going to lie so much in uh, a lot of kind of abstract knowledge about the poem, but rather in an experience of reading the poem. And you can sort of make up your mind then as a student, does this poem mean something to me or not? And, you know, that's fair. That's the right of every reader to sort of make that decision for themselves. Well, excellent. Well, opening remarks concluded. Would you like to do the first read through of five? Okay, so we're at, we're at section five. I believe in you, my soul, and the other I am must not abase itself to you, and you must not be abased to the other. Loaf with me on the grass, loose the stop from your throat. Not words, not music or rhyme I want, not custom or lecture, not even the best, only the lull I like, the hum of your valved voice. I mind how once we lay such a transparent summer morning, how you settled your head athwart my hips and gently turned over upon me and parted the shirt from my bosom bone and plunged your tongue to my bare-stripped heart and reached till you felt my beard and reached till you held my feet, swiftly arose and spread around me the peace and knowledge that pass all the argument of the earth. And I know that the hand of God is the promise of my own and I know that the Spirit of God is the brother of my own, and that all the men ever born are also my brothers, and the women my sisters and lovers, and that a kelson of the creation is love, and limitless are leaves stiff or drooping in the fields, and brown ants in the little wells beneath them, and mossy scabs of the worm fence, heaped stones, elder, mullein, and pokeweed. All right, well, that's excellent. We, we really cover some ground in those uh, four stanzas of part five. So we have this admission of faith in the beginning, I believe in you, my soul, which could be either some transcendent Christian concept or also sort of a naturalist concept, given what we'll have in the next few stanzas, sort of an idea of the eternal return or, uh, or a return to nature and remaining alive forever sort of idea coming out. But the other, I'm not, I must not abase itself to you. I should just what, what do you think that is, Wes? I'm not quite sure myself. Is that the body or the being that you are in general? Um, I, I really like that phrase because it's very ambiguous, right? You can read it, the other I am, or you can read it, the other I am. And the one means, yeah, like me, this person, this body, or something like that, the, the thing that's not the soul or whatever that would be. But the other I am is like, that's, that's God, right? Ah, yes. He's the I am. And that's super interesting that in some way they're equals, right? The soul right. and God, neither, neither abases itself to the other. And that's, that's a little, I mean, that might be kind of the secondary like meaning of this, but I think that's kind of interesting. Well, and I think that's good. And that's great because as you know, from the lectures, and reading Maps of Meaning by Peterson, Carl Rogers talked about the being and how you can become estranged from your being as if the being were God. And so mm. for the phenomenologists, I think that distinction would actually dissolve. And I would say from Dante's point of view, that's exactly right. Um, if he is engaging with Dante in this moment, knowingly or unknowingly, Dante first presents Jesus, who is according to doctrine, 100% man and 100% divine, meaning they're equally present in him. Mm -hmm. um, as a griffin, which is a hybrid, which has equally present within it, eagle, representation of Zeus or God the Father, 
uh, that which flies above and is king of the skies, like a divine spirit floating above you and watching over you, which is the language of the divine, of course. Um, but also lion, which prowls the land, like a human, which can be gold in some way. Uh, you know, at least we can have gold hair um, and wear gold ornaments on ourselves. We often do, in fact. And uh, no, matter, no matter what culture it is, uh, perhaps there are some that don't value gold, but I, I find it highly unlikely. In, in any case, the idea is that there's a parity between the soul and God, between uh, that which is divine and that which is human, that he makes over and over again, as if they are one and the same. And so perhaps Walt Whitman here is suggesting that we all have a very deep responsibility to ourselves to, to live with dignity, uh, to not be a base. That's very strong language there, a base. And I remember in my sophomore English class, honors, they, uh, we learned about how if you get a base, you might find uh, yourself in a basement and uh, <laughs> that it's to be lowered, to denigrate yourself, to, to fall would be the, the, the deepest manifestation of it. Um, and so to keep in mind that what you are is not like, just to use the, the idiom, a vessel of God, but that you have the responsibility of acting as a good one, as a good God, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, and that that's actually a much more interesting way to live um, and more productive way to live. I, I like all the, uh, the imagery here seems to be that they're sort of equals, right? Like the soul and the body the soul is spoken of in a bodily fashion and the imagery for its relationship to God is, is all very physical and very palpable. And it's, I think, yeah, it's, it strongly suggests this, um, this equivalence or this uh, parity between the two, um, as opposed to a, a situation of kind of um, pride or subservience or, or any of that, right? It, it's just a kind of uh, easy companionship instead. Yes, and uh, it's precisely that companionship which I find so interesting because it's precisely the presence of that in the experience of awareness of it which gives him ultimate pleasure. It mm. is like the experience of art or, or rather beauty in music or in, our, or in perception of a piece of art or a person, right? Someone's beautiful or super attractive. You just want to look at them. The experience of seeing them is pleasure enough. Or a great song that you love. It plays and you just focus on it. You fixate on it. Just awareness of its existence is enough to give you pleasure. And it seems to be the case here with being or with that which is divine. Only the lullaby like. The hum of your valvid voice. And I like the, the uh, use of an accent grab there. Um, yeah. Diacritical marks not often used in English, but well used in poetry, and it is important to get that right. The up to downward stroke, which is an accent grave, adds, uh, makes that E uh, uh, pop, valvid rather than valved. It makes, um, it makes an extra syllable where otherwise we would elide that in our English way of speaking. And so it's good to know that if you are going to read this out loud, because then you will read it correctly. Um, but only the lullaby, like the hum of your valvid voice, that, that itself making the word valvid uh, one but two, right? Now two syllables, uh, mm. both begun by V, both with three, three letters, thus equal one 
valve and one going down and one sort of left alone, it's very beautiful. Uh, it reminds me very much of, I, I forget what the image of Christ is, what it's called. I think it's called the Theotokos, where half the face is supposed to be divine and half the face is supposed to be human. And it's hard for you to guess at which one is which. Um, but they are very much different. It was for a long time my wallpaper, uh, just because I find it interesting. But it's just being at home with himself, not even music or words or anything, gives him as much much pleasure as perceiving that which is either divine or utterly mundane, the soul or the body or 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 the being beneath. It's I just I find that fascinating the perception of being is the most pleasant thing that he can imagine. Right, right. It's a visceral and a uh uh, pretty erotic really um sort of experience here and then it becomes spiritual as well and then back to nature right this well that's that's very interesting yeah because i wanted to say because of course it does get erotic here and reading about his um biography this is something that got whitman into a lot of trouble and a lot of people didn't much care for what he was doing uh because he did use sort of imagery of sex and in fact the word sex um and and I, I wanted to make a comment on that, that one might understand that the value of a poet comes not simply from upholding cultural norms, but also um, examining that which is not the norm and going outside of custom in order to draw our attention to that which we, what, to that which has become faux pas in our society to remind us that it is real and can be beautiful regardless of our current perceptions. And in that way, I think he consciously is linking his song of myself to the song of songs that uses oh, yeah. sensual imagery as well. And I think that's a very strong argument against a sort of prudish, priggish, um, prudential censoring of him for that reason. Because just because our values now have shifted in such a way as to not um, care for the erotic element of life does not mean that it is not beautiful and does not mean that it is not amongst the most beautiful aspects of life. Obviously, we all very much love it, regardless of how embarrassed it makes us because of our British uh, ancestry. Um, <laughs> but I mean, something you, it is like the Ars Amatoria was, was heralded in Roman poetry, in Greek poetry too, in French poetry and literature to this day, as well as in Hindu, you know, tantric yoga, uh, not only practice, but in the, the Kama Sutra. And, you know, we can call that pornographic, but that, that is a work of pro profound import for a culture, which means that that culture focuses on something different from what we do, which means there's potentially beauty unseen by us out in the unknown. And I think that's part of what uh, Whitman is making us confront here, that part of our being is being left out in the unknown, and that part of being a poet is to remind us that it's there so we can go out and find it. Yeah, I really like that connection to the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, because I think he's definitely, with all his ands, this kind of style that you get in the Old Testament of linking simple phrases and, and clauses with, with that and construction and putting that at the start of sentences. And it just kind of gives you this, this rolling and majestic kind of cadence to everything, which is... Very beautiful, yeah, no matter what it's talking about. Well, and it goes from top to low, right? Swiftly arose and spread around me peace and knowledge, the most abstract concepts that we have, right? It's peace and knowledge and swiftly arose like spirits, something intangible. 
And then I know the hand of God and spirit of God. Again, abstraction. It's highly abstract, very heavenly in that respect, and that that belongs to the mind. But then you get down to the end. Well, so you have this Kelson, which is itself the Kelson of this stanza right in the middle of it, right? Of the mm -hmm. creationist love. So love is what stands in the middle uh, between that which is divine and that which is human, or that which is mundane and that which is divine. And then beneath there, we get that which is mundane, nature, right? Leaves. And so that's a, that's, that's a reference to the title of, I think, the book that this is within, Leaves of Grass, as well as the Homeric statement, which Dante echoes later, which is which he repeats twice, once by Glaucus, once by Apollo in the Iliad, which is just as leaves on a tree are, so are the generations of man. And so limitless are the leaves. Nature limitlessly provides, like that, that old quote um, that I forget where it comes from, but we can look it up, which is, uh, you know, this, this place eats itself and thus survives. Uh, the, and it's talking about a forest. It consumes itself like an Ouroboros and thus survives. And, um, and so then we get brown ants and little wells, small parts of nature, inconsequential, and then even smaller, even grosser, worm fence, and stones, and elder, and mulain, which is, or however you say that, mulain, it's uh, just, it's similar to pokeweed, it's just some na native uh, fauna or flora, showing, mm -hmm. again, my sort of like prejudice against that, which is natural, as if it's not just as divine as I am, that it has been. Right, but but I think there's being a, con a connection being made in this last stanza to the natural and the divine, and a parody being drawn between them. That parody being love, and perhaps humans being the ultimate embodiment of that. Yeah, I, it's a brilliant series of images. Uh, the Kelson evokes the sea without directly saying it, and then the rest of it is yeah. It's got the mixture of flora, fauna. Uh, but all, all sort of small things, you know, things that you, as you say, you go from the highest to the lowest and, and you link them with, with love. All right. Well, do you want to read on to part six? Sounds good to me. Okay. <clears throat> A child said, what is the grass? Fetching it to me with full hands. How could I answer the child? I do not know what it is any more than he. I guess it must be the flag of my disposition, out of hopeful green stuff woven. Or, I guess it is the handkerchief of the Lord, a scented gift and remembrancer, designedly dropped, bearing the owner's name some way in the corners that we may see and remark and say, whose? Or, I guess the grass is itself a child, the produced babe of the vegetation. Or, I guess it is a uniform hieroglyphic, and it means, sprouting alike in broad zones and narrow zones, growing among black folks as among white. Canuck, Tuckahoe, Congressman, Cuff, I give them the same. I receive them the same. And now it seems to me the beautiful uncut hair of graves. Tenderly will I use you, curling grass. It may be you, it may be you transpire from the breasts of young men. It may be if I had known them, I would have loved them. It may be you are from old people or from offspring taken soon out of their mother's laps. And here you are the mother's laps. This grass is very dark to be from the white heads of old mothers, darker than the colorless beards of old men, dark to come from under the faint red roofs of mouths. Oh, I perceive after all so many uttering tongues and I perceive they do not come from the roofs of mouths for nothing. I wish I could translate the hints about the dead young men and women and the hints about old men and mothers 
and the offspring taken soon out of their laps. What do you think has become of the young and old men? What do you think has become of the women and children? They are alive and well somewhere. Smallest sprout shows there is really no death. And if ever there was, it led forward life and does not wait at the end to arrest it and cease the moment life appeared. All goes onward and outward, nothing collapses. And to die is different from what anyone supposed and luckier. Yeah. Really gets to it at the end there. And I apologize for a couple punctuations added by myself. It's only because of inaccuracy and lack of experience, I assure you. So. No. Uh, as, a, as an immediate thing here, like you mentioned, the grass is the, is the title of the uh, work from which this poem is taken, The Leaves of Grass. Uh, and it has some other poems of Whitman's. I don't think any are quite as. Um, as long as this, but uh, the the image seems to be that all of his poems, right, are are the separate uh, blades which together compose what we see as as the grass, if we even sort of notice it, you know. So so it has this kind of again this effect of of being something very common, something very everyday, and yet something intensely vital and vivid and um, and sort of yeah eternal in, in its own right uh and so again the we got the child here asking simple question what is the grass and then the the whole stand the whole rather the whole section six uh becomes his kind of answer to that um to that child to that question which turns out to be really you know all those what is questions those are always very interesting philosophical questions questions of being. Um, so just to kind of give an overview of them, it seems like the initial ones are um, a little more evocative. Uh, we have the reference again explicitly to the Lord, right, with capital L, and the child asking a question could well be one of those children that Christ said to suffer them to come. Uh, but then I think there's an allusion here possibly to um, Othello, where there's a, uh, a, a a dropping of a handkerchief that's like a very significant plot point. Um, and so he's playing with that a little bit, possibly, or just, you know, the idea that a handkerchief can point towards a handkerchief owner. <laughs> anyway, uh, and then, you know, he turns it back. Oh, the grass itself is a child. So then beyond that, it becomes kind of interesting. Okay, so if it's a child, then it's people. Ah, it, it bespeaks people and their equivalents in, in death, right? Graves. And so he really riffs on that for the rest of the stand, the, the section here, uh, the different dead people and, and in what way the grass belongs to, bespeaks them. I perceive after all, so here's this kind of his final answer, so many, un, so many uttering tongues. And so they speak to him, right? And, and he lets them speak through him in this poem. Um, they're telling him something. He wishes he could say what it is. And he seems to try to say what it is at the end there, right? To die is different from what anyone supposed and luckier. And I think that's very intriguing. I don't know quite what to make of that, but uh, it's cool. It's a good one. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting that you notice and observe the parody between grass as that which is eternally young and so close to the ground and thus just springing out into existence like a child and yet also that which is cover for those who are dead. 
And so there's a parody of the symbol for that which is just born and that which is just dead um, or dead for some time. In this way, um, and, and in the same way that there's a parody between that which is immortal and that which is mortal and suggesting that um, sort of life is a circle in that respect. Mm. And I, I just noticed because you, you drew attention to Lord being capitalized and that's, of course, God, which is immortal, but also Canuck, Tuckahoe, Congressman, and Cuff, humans, uh, right. are given the same dignity in the language. And so I thought that was also something interesting to note. Also that perhaps he's making some comment on how to read this poem and how to experience life as well. Like you were saying, the sort of mundane aspect of hopeful green stuff woven flag of my disposition. This is how I always am, right? It's like, well... Look at this poem. If each one of these parts is an indication of a day of a life or a day in a year, and they're totally different, and yet they're each supposed to, they're each purportedly uh, representative samples of his being, then you are, you are not always like anything. You are so different, and each experience you have is so, so much different from the one before that truly Heraclitus was right about. <laughs> You never uh, step in the same river twice because each one of these parts is completely different from the others. And yet there, I'm sure we will find a theme, a, a Kelson running through it, like love through the universe. But, um, but I, I just, I think it's interesting that that which goes unnoticed is precisely that which is most profound about life. Like the ant walking by and the fact that each one of your days is so actually different and that your experience um, your experience is where life is. Um. Yeah, I I think it's it's cool because in some sense, you know, you, you do partake of you have to partake of death uh, in your in your attempt to say something about what happened. The thing itself is already gone, right? And so there is that that passage from a living experience to uh, to poetic utterance. There's a distance there as much as you might want to try to make the poetic utterance uh, all encompassing, right? As, as Whitman seems to want to do, there's always that, that, that disconnect or that, that possibility that what you're saying isn't going to get across what you're feeling and the person reading it isn't going to quite get from it what you might intend them to get from it. And, and that seems to be something he's kind of playing with here and, and he comes out on the side of a pretty robust optimism about it all, but um, but I guess there's always a certain amount of luck involved. Seems to be the the ending there. Well, it's interesting too because um, then a poet would, in a way, be like a person screaming through a soundproof glass, like they are themselves representing being in an articulated fashion that's uh, not as articulate as a philosophical philosophically or scientifically expressing what they're saying, but in a more imagistic fashion, uh, more intuitive fashion. Um, but um, if what he is saying is that being transcends representation at all times, of course the person reading or listening to the poem is having being represented in front of them. And so they would have to get the message, literally speaking, and then like stop reading the poetry and go on to some being, unless it's actually the case that perceiving representation is a wonderful augment to our being. And mm. that's why we say go to rituals and uh, listen to music and concerts 
and um, watch movies together um, because we love to, as a group, experience a representation of being beautifully done or well done. Yeah, yeah, that seems to be the message, right? Like that if that, that love or that connection sort of is felt through and even the simplest question then becomes this kind of incredible um, point of of all of this this outpouring of of ideas and and fascinating images and uh, the sense of being alive. Yeah, it's it's super super cool. And before we move to to seven, I just wanted to note, note that that word he throws in in the or I guess it is a uniform hieroglyphic. So that's a, a holy glyph, a holy symbol. A uniform language is what he means there. And so what is it? It sprouts alike in broad zones, narrow zones, run among black floats and among white. So yin yang, Canuck, Tuckahoe, Congressman, Cuff. So it's everywhere. This is universal, uniform, like how humans are mm -hmm. uniform and possibly uniform with God. Um, and uh, I give them the same, I receive the same, the fairness principle. Bang, there it is, justice. Right. In that poem, again, like a Kelson, that's what's universal in this world. It's, it's almost like a free market capitalist argument, right? Because that, that is, in fact, what is said by Nassim Taleb and Anti-Fragile that what makes people truly forgiving of each other and tolerant is business. The fact that they're working together and being fair to each other, they don't care about anything as much as, be, as fairness when it comes to things like one's livelihood and money. And so... That makes a lot of sense to me that that would be in here. And that does seem to be, a, though I would say a very pragmatic principle, precisely what gave the American pragmatist the idea to be American pragmatist. It seems like we, uh, as a people, even in our poetry, care so much about this. And that's why we can have things like Amazon.com where people we never know send us things that we've never seen that work and we send them money and that always works, essentially speaking. Yeah, it's a, well, it's a work in progress, but that seems to be the ideal anyhow. Right. All right. All right. Yeah. And yeah, okay, so so he picks right up from that last kind of kind of comment, that intriguing comment. Uh, uh, seven. Has anyone supposed it lucky to be born? I hasten to inform him or her, it is just as lucky to die, and I know it. I pass death with the dying and birth with the new washed babe and am not contained between my hat and boots and peruse manifold objects, no two alike and everyone good, the earth good and the stars good and their adjuncts all good. I am not an earth nor an adjunct of the earth. I am the mate and companion of people, all just as immortal and fathomless as myself. They do not know how immortal, but I know. Every kind for itself and its own, for me, mine, male and female, for me, those that have been boys and that love women, for me, the man that is proud and feels how it stings to be slighted, for me, the sweetheart and the old maid, for me, mothers and the mothers of mothers, for me, lips that have smiled, eyes that have shed tears, for me, children and the begetters of children. Undrape, you are not guilty to me, nor stale, nor discarded. I see through the broadcloth and gingham, whether it know and am around, tenacious, acquisitive, tireless, and cannot be shaken away. 
well, this seems to be either life or consciousness or God, some spirit passing through all living beings and all things, in fact, and all experiences as well, suggesting an identity between thing and being and thing and experience, as if an experience within time is as close to permanence as anything can, can come to being. And in fact, it's something that's here and then gone forever. Um, but can be maintained or represented in some way and, and thus does have an eternal aspect, right? Once somebody's embodied the, the archetype of the hero, the archetype of the hero exists functionally forever in representation, and, right? In art and in story. And so there is an aspect of immortality in legend or in artifice. But this strikes me, again, we get that um, repetition of first word in um, the penultimate stanza, four, 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 and for me, uh, and just for those who are learning some grammar, for me, that preposition four puts the I into the objective case, which is me, that which, the object which receives action, or is the object here of the preposition. And so that which is the object is this me, rather than the subject, which means that you have been completely altered in terms of your place within being or the, or the situation. You are not the giver of action, but the receiver here. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and for me being sort of like a purpose clause means that the purpose of all things are for you as if all that has been created is for you. And that for you is here either being or consciousness or God. And so it's, it's, there's sort of unclear what all creation is for or who all creation is for god or you or are you one and the same and thus both and thus we have this undrape at the end this uh mm -hmm. reveal yourself revelation mm -hmm. just like the book of revelation and it's revelation in the in the singular not the plural uh for an etiquette point there or a culture point uh that comes at the end of the new testament undrape reveal yourself the the the, all the work has now led to the giant connection, which helps you to see reality in a fuller, richer way. You are not guilty to me. Here's the revelation. You're not, it's not a moral judgment, nor stale, nor discarded. All beings have some value. I see through the broadcloth in Gingham, whether or no. He sees through the nonsense or the judgments of other people. His judgment is transcendent. And I'm around, tenacious, inquisitive, tireless, and cannot be shaken away. And so no matter what your life has been, the experience of being or God remains. And no matter what has happened before, and this seems to be echoing the conversation we had yesterday with Final Fantasy VII, you can have value in your life and that you, you need to continue to reveal to yourself and thus to that which is divine how uh, reality unfolds and that you shouldn't just get caught up on moral considerations and uh, uh, you know, fail to do that. Yeah, well, it's a profound sense of purpose here, right? The four, four con conveys that th there's a there's a purpose to all of these things, and that that purpose is not anywhere, right? Except for for within the thing itself, right? It's like you said before about the circle of of life and death. Well, now we have a kind of circle of things existing. Um, they're they're experiencing their own being um simply for that right so every kind for itself or me mine 
right? For the for me, those that have been boys and that love women, um, so that they are all sort of there's something purposeful there, and that it is connected with that uh, that life and death circle, and that uh, it will yeah it will be revealed <laughs> like you say, um, and that that's uh, I guess. I guess that's what we're to understand by the the lucky, the the concept of luck, um, has something to do with, with that, right? That's like the idea of, of fortune, of um, uh, the the revelation of what it's all about. Like that, that's sort of what comes uh, through through death. Well, and I I wonder to what extent you just made me think with revelation of the Patronus and Harry Potter and how. Harry first manifests the Patronus and perceiving himself to be his father, and thus he fathers himself by generating the ideal of himself, or just like sort of Jesus speaking about, I come in the name of the Father, and he says, I come, I, you know, the ideal is what I work for and what I'm striving towards. And so I wonder to what extent here the idea, the idea is that, I don't want to, I don't want to lose it here, is that once you have lived a full life, a full circle life, at that moment of realization of your ultimate self, that father aspect, and that you have fathered your life, and that you have had your whole life, you then have the revelation of what it's all about. Because you have that full circle perspective of dust to dust. You've lived the full life, and thus you've lived the divine life, and then you get that sort of godlike perspective at the end of it in the same way that you lived your life and sort of a Jesus-like pursuing that which is divine way that you get the ultimate snitch-like golden spherical halo perspective at the end of life. If you, if you follow what I often call the path of the hero, but the path of realization or revelation, the path of full experience to some extent, though I think there might have to be some parameters to that, so maybe it's an oxymoron. Um, yeah. It's, it's super, I mean, it's super... Um again, super embodied, right? He's embodying, he's, he's kind of modeling for us this process, um, but it's also at the same time universal. And, and that seems to be, as you say, the, the idea that the hero is not this particular hero or that particular hero, but the, the path, the way of being, which is summed up in the word hero. Yeah, no two alike and everyone good, says Whitman yeah. here, you know, or yeah. And um, the earth good and the stars good and their adjuncts, all good. So we hear this is good and this is a knower, again, divine omniscient. And again, naming things as good, just as the divine does at the beginning of Genesis. Right. Um, after, and what's interesting is that the divine is defining the days, but then the man who's made then defines all the things in the world by the light that has been created by the divine. And so there's an idea there that what the divine is is consciousness of man as manifested through man. And that's what the light is. And so that's why, you know, when theologians, theologians argue about the fact that the sun is made on the third day and light is made on the first, it's like, well, that's not the point. The light is consciousness. It's not, it's not terrestrial or celestial light um, in its literal, uh, form and so well yeah i just i would just interject there like 
I don't think anyone fully understands light. And it's kind of like the question, what is grass, right? Like it's right. that kind of, it's that kind of philosophical slash physics type question, which you can, you can just go to town with trying to figure out simple, well, simplest question. Well, right. And it's, it's both wave and particle as by how we define it now, which means at mm -hmm. some point we will find a better way to define it. And yet perhaps its mystery will unfold to a deeper level. And so undrape, we will undrape ourselves in our own capacities through our attempts to undrape reality. Yeah. And I, I think, and I think reality and the word reify and object are all useful here because it comes from Latin word rei, which means thing. And so again, we're really, uh, we're really touching at and trying to examine the, the uh, relationship between being and thing, experience and object, I think, in this poem. Um, yeah. Because there are objects, but there are like manifold objects, no two alike, everyone good, earth, stars, adjuncts, which means, I guess, all the other things. But then also, you know, the man that is proud and feels how it stings to be slighted. These are all real, which again, you see in the word real, Ray thing. Um, and so what real is for us, whether it's a meaningful experience or a desk, and which one is more real to you, and which one sticks more in your memory and affects your being more, I think is a very profound question to be putting to ourselves. And apparently this is also a poem that, that suggests we should be asking these profound questions daily. Okay. Right? Has anyone supposed it lucky to be born? Because a lot of people, especially the epic poets, talk about how miserable life can be, right? Aeneas, miserable life. His people fell, and then he had to spend several years, seven, trying to find a new place to live. And then, or rather, ten. And then, or rather, I think it was seven, actually. Sorry, I do teach this book. And then a three additional fighting against some, some Latins, and then dies under weird conditions three years later. And so, very tough life. Odysseus goes through many difficult things as well. Um, and even to read the Old Testament as he's been engaging with. The, you know, the Hebrews, they get messed up several times, multiple times by the Babylonians and the Egyptians and, you know, the Canaanites and several other groups they, they beef with. And, um, but, you know, has anyone supposed to lucky to be born? I love that question. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just lucky to die. And, you know, that's, that sometimes seems true, too. Life can be very difficult, right? And the fact that we can be relieved of life at the end of it, instead of having to endure, you know, even further degeneration, is perhaps a blessing in some way. You know? Well, we've, uh, <clears throat> we've uh, really covered quite some ground without covering too much ground at all today, Wes. I think, um, right. I think we're at 46 minutes now, so we should close. Um, but yeah, did you have any closing thoughts or? Well, I, I don't, I think that's, you know, we've got to the grass, we've got to the, uh, the child. And I, I think we're making some good progress through this. So for now we can just uh, call it a day, I guess. Yeah. And I think that's the beautiful thing about poetry in this medium we have. Of course we could spend as little time as we needed on this poem, but it, it is like a playground or like a field of grass where we get to, to add our amusement and while just lulling, observe our own being in response to a specific task and uh, through the representations of being in uh, the poem. And it's as if we embody it and bring it back to life 
in the now while also um, enriching our now and our experience of being by, um, by engaging with such a profound intellect and experiencer of life and articulator of that experience, Whitman. Mm. So, you know, it's like getting to sit at the feet or in this case, around a seminar table with another master. Yeah, yeah, he's, uh, I don't know if he'd sit still that long in the seminar table, but yeah, I like, I like the idea of we're out in the field loafing with him. That's cool. Yeah, I'm sure we could find something to talk about. Um, we already have, so. <laughs> All, right. All right, well, we'll start with eight next time. Sounds good. Till then. Bye.